Hello and welcome to 100 Campaigns That Change the World. This episode is about the campaign for equal marriage in the UK, sometimes referred to as gay marriage. Uh, the interview is with Andrew Copson, who's the chief executive of Humanists UK. Um, and I was in his offices uh, today in London and I recorded the episode. Andrew was very much involved as the leader, one of the leaders of the campaign which led to same-sex marriage being becoming recognised uh, in law. So the legislation um, was passed in the UK in, in 2013 and came into force in 2014. And before that, something called civil partnerships, which offered most but not all of the rights and benefits of marriage, had been recognised since 2005. Um, so the campaign... Um, in England and Wales uh, for same-sex marriage was was led by the Coalition for Equal Marriage, uh, which is a, a British campaign group created in 2012 by Coroner Marin and James Lattimore, um, who were uh, a same-sex couple who were who were who were um, um, proposing that change. But but the, the you know the campaigning went back uh, years before that and. Others like Peter Tatchell, who who is on an earlier episode of this podcast, was also involved. Um, so the government at the time was a coalition government. And I think that's quite important when you're listening to the podcast because um, you, you, you have to understand the sort of political context was slightly unusual. Um, so we talk a bit about that uh, and much else in this in this episode. So um, here's at Andrew Copson and um, the Campaign for Equal Marriage. Hello and welcome to 100 Campaigns That Change the World. I'm with Andrew Copson and we're talking about equal marriage and the campaign um, for that. Um, hi, Andrew. Hi. Um, so, Andrew, I just wanted to start with, you know, kind of looking back at the campaign um, historically. You know, could you just explain how it sort of started, how it got going um, and, and, you know, the historical roots, if you like, of, of, of the campaign? Sure. Well, I think the one of the most distinctive things about the campaign for same-sex marriage is that it was never just one campaign. You know, it's campaigns, um, very many different groups, different couples, um, different individuals through trying to take legal action or trying to conduct their own sort of clandestine marriages and have them recognised or trying to get policy change and legislative change have really been active since the um, mid-20th century. Uh, to a greater or lesser extent, I mean the the campaign really the campaigns really hotted up and went up in intensity towards the end of the twentieth century. Obviously, when basic issues like decriminalisation and um, unequal uh, ages of consent and so on were, were sort of either in the dustbin of history or about to be, and the next stage was seen as being equal civil rights for uh, same sex couples. But even before that, there was um, there was work being done, and I. And my my own personal experience of that is quite strange because uh, long before I even joined Humanist UK or came to work here, I was involved in one of those very grassroots campaigns for equal marriage when I was an undergraduate student in the late 90s. 
um, the Queer Rights Caucus, uh, which was, you know, campaigning for LGBT rights, organized a big uh, same-sex marriage demo in the center of the town where I was at university, which had some great photographs. That's one thing about marriage campaigns. You get some great photographs with uh, people in beautiful dresses and colorful clothes and so on, um, which I think was on the front page, at least of The Guardian. Um, and that was, that's what, sort of turn of the century, 2000-ish. Um, and that was just one of the very many sort of bubblings up of grassroots support um, for the idea of same-sex marriage. So I think campaigns is the, is, is the first thing to say. And then, like a lot of progressive change that comes in the UK, the campaign really accelerated once it had happened somewhere else. And of course, uh, the Netherlands was the first jurisdiction to actually give legal recognition to uh, same-sex marriage. And after that, that's when the, the campaigns heated up. So around the turn of the um, beginning of the, the 21st century, um, there's uh, a legal case um, to try and get legal recognition for two women who had married overseas. That failed ultimately um, to be uh, to succeed to, to be recognised as a marriage. Um, but nonetheless, that was a, a sign of things to come. And then the policy campaign started in earnest. And of course, they were what really, in the end, led to change. Change in the end came through Parliament, not through the, through the law courts. Was there any um, disagreement in the movement about what, you know, if you think about the wider, the wider LGBT community, uh, about whether that, you know, that was something to go for versus other, other rights or other, other things that you were seeking? Did, people, did some people think it was a distraction or were you pretty united in, in going for it? It depends really on which phase you're talking about. In the run-up to what became the Civil Partnerships Act, and I wasn't involved in any organisations then, so this is, as it were, an outside observer, an individual gay person's campaigning perspective. But in the run-up to that, it was, I think pretty clear that everyone believed that that was a priority, that legal recognition for same-sex relationship was a priority. And I remember going to meetings about this where you heard from especially people who were older, who'd had... Um, who'd lived through uh, the AIDS epidemic when it was particularly acute and who had had the desperate experience either themselves or everyone had seen someone who'd been through this experience of people who were to all intents and purposes the next of kin mm -hmm. of people who were dying um, being completely unable to have access to um, their partners, sometimes their, you know, their life partners um, at the end of their lives and instead often being... <laughs> blocked, you know, if you're lucky, uh, um, maybe being allowed to participate by the parents or the next of kin of the person that you love. But if you're unlucky, and many people are unlucky, being essentially blocked from any participation in their partner's last days, mm -hmm. and certainly what happened after uh, their deaths. So, you know, going to meetings before what became civil partnership back, so late 90s, early, early noughties, you would hear those sorts of personal testimonies, personal experiences. And lots of different organisations, and this is why I was back to what I said earlier about it being campaigns, not campaign when it yeah. comes to uh, same-sex marriage. Lots of different organisations have been pressing this point for, for, for quite some time, saying there needs to be legal recognition for these relationships. Now, Humanist UK had actually been uh, conducting non-lawful marriage ceremonies through the, through the second part of the, the 20th century um, and also had um, led some of the local... Um, moves towards registration that had occurred, for example, Ken Livingstone, he was uh, in London, um, had uh, 
Ken Livingston, the mayor. Of Ken Livingston, the mayor of London, yeah, had um, created a sort of register for, for you know, and uh, for partners, and and human settlements have been very involved in that. But there were at that point when legal recognition, just basic legal recognition for the relationships with what was on the agenda, I think everyone's pretty united. And then the Civil Partnership Act, which for many of us, myself included, was you know progress, but was not sufficient, and was a a, a sort of second best or diluted form of marriage as far as we were concerned. Those of us who felt that way, I think, then thought, well, marriage is next. Marriage is the next thing. But there were some people who thought, no, that's enough. You know, right. civil partnerships is enough. And in the early stages of the um, coalition government attempts to create equal marriage, that was actually pretty much more or less the position of Stonewall, which is, I mean, right. listeners may not know, Stonewall... Um, at the time, and, and now still, I think, this was the leading national uh, rights mm. campaigner for um, LGBT people. Stonewall's position when equal marriage looked like it might actually happen was, was, was pretty difficult to read. Sometimes they were saying, OK, that's fine. Sometimes they were saying, you know, we've got, our, we've got legal rights. Um, we can leave it at that. Mm. We don't need to proceed. And that was obviously division at that point. So it, it, it sounds like, you know, fairly united, but, but some dissonance. But it also read, you know, that, that some people sort of didn't believe in, there were some people who didn't believe in marriage per se and thought that the institution wasn't sort of something that should be engaged with. Absolutely. So people like Peter Tatchell, long-term uh, LGBT rights campaigner and human rights campaigner um, in the UK, um, was who's also a member of Humanist UK and also a friend of the podcast and friend of your podcast. Yes, that's good. You've interviewed him, so he, of course, very marriage skeptical. Definitely was always quick to point out the that the liberation tradition of twentieth century gay rights campaigning was, you know, part of that tradition was to liberate people from these sorts of institutions and yeah. you know, to be a model for a um, a new life, a freer life, a better way of living uh, and loving. Um, than than this sort of conventional pattern of marriage had been. So that was very much uh, uh, you know out there as an argument. I suppose that probably influenced some of those um, within Stonewall and elsewhere who were, as it were, marriage sceptical, at least at the, at the beginning. Um, but in the end, I mean, I remember Peter saying, well, I wouldn't get married myself, but for as long as marriage exists, it should be opened up to same-sex couples. Mm-hmm. And I think that was, in the end, the pragmatic view of of most um, most gay campaigners, yeah, and although it's seems... and of course once it's on once it's on offer as mm. well, you know, once at least one party in government has said, "Oh, we think you're yes. doing this," it's sort of churlish not to <laughs> come in on well, on it. That's right, and and you know, it was it was interestingly under a conservative government that we got this law, or at least a coalition led by the conservatives, a conservative led coalition, yes. Um, but I think it's important always to remember that. Um, the, it was the Liberal Democrats in government that really pressed it. I mean, Lynn Featherstone has obviously written at length in her own uh, personal memoir about the role of the Liberal Democrats in pushing this. The Lib Dem LGBT group was also um, the first political group to join the Coalition for Equal Marriage that uh, was formed by two members of ours um, just after the Coalition government took, took power. So the Lib Dems, were, I think, were really... Um, the Liberal Democrat Party, for, you know, for those who might be listening overseas, the Liberal Democrat mm. Party, which is sort of like the third, was the third party of UK politics and was in coalition with the Conservatives. And their policy had been for, silly is really, was just for complete equality um, for everything that straight people have, for gay people to have as well. So, I mean, they, their, their policy is really uncomplicated. 
And so they were, um, and Lynn Featherstone as the Equalities Minister mm. in coalition were obviously uh, keen. But there was something in the Conservative Party at the time, um, because at the time they were very keen to show that they were, you know, they didn't win the general election in 2010, as we know. They, they were the largest party, but not a majority. And they were quite keen to demonstrate socially progressive credentials in mm. various ways. Um, quite rightly, as it turned out, believing that that was now the culture of the UK and mm. that um, if you didn't fit in with that, you were sort of didn't have much of an electoral uh, chance. And I suppose that it's also the case, at least people say who spoke to them, and I wasn't one of those who spoke to them, that um, prominent conservative ministers like Theresa May, who was the then Home Secretary, like David Cameron, who was the then Prime Minister, and George Osborne, who was the then uh, Chancellor, that um, their friends, including their gay friends, you know, had um, been speaking to them about this for some time and that they were, because of their age and their you know, social sympathies, very much inclined towards supporting it. Um, even people like Theresa May, who in her, the past parliamentary career that she'd had, had been very opposed to, to gay rights. You know, she was an interesting person. Obviously, she went on to become prime minister. Um, but at this point, you can read this in Lynn Featherston's memoir too, I believe, um, she said, you know, I was wrong before. And actually, mm. um, same-sex couples do deserve equality. So, so in some senses, you're, you're right. Because you know, I'm interested to see, to, to, to understand the degree to which you felt you were riding a wave of, you know, increasing public support, increasing political support. Or, to, you know, to what degree did you think you were making the political weather in that, in that period? I don't think that same-sex marriage would have happened when it did if there hadn't been a coalition government. I think it was highly contingent in that respect. Um, it certainly wasn't a policy of the Labour Party, although the Labour Party went on to effectively pass it for the government in the House of Commons, because right. although it was a Conservative-led government that introduced um, the bill that gave legal recognition to same-sex marriage, um, you know, so many Conservatives voted against it yes. that it was passed in effect by Labour Party votes. But although the Labour Party obviously supported it and has traditionally been the equality-minded party, I don't think it was particularly on the, you know, on the agenda of, of, of the Labour Party had they won the 2010 election. Um, and after all, it was the Labour Party who passed the Civil Partnership Act rather than equal marriage back, yes. in, back in 2004. Uh, if the Conservative Party had been in on its own... Um, again, I don't think that, that they would have been inclined towards it. There were some pre-election questions that were asked to, uh, certainly to George Osborne, maybe to others, but I remember to George Osborne, um, where he sort of said, well, you know, we're not against it. We'll see, you know, see what happens, um, whatever. And, um, but I don't think that there was, I don't think it was a big political issue mm. until, you know, the Liberal Democrats in government made it so. And as to whether we were going with the grain of society, well... Progressive change in England especially, might be true across the UK, but it's certainly true in England, is very controversial until the point when it's about to happen and then it stops being controversial. And after it's happened, everyone thinks it's always been that way and just carries on. You know, that's, that's I think, generally true of, of, of uh, people in England, certainly, but I think people in the whole of the UK. You find it in opinion polls, you know, yeah. at the moment something, when the moment the law has changed, suddenly public opinion changes quite, quite, mm. quite, quite, quite dramatically. And that is the case of with same-sex marriage, you know, there wasn't a majority of the majority of the public didn't support uh, equal marriage. Um, it, a plurality of them did, but it was under fifty percent. 
So, you know, yeah. it wasn't like there was a massive groundswell of, of, of people who but now um, if you look, supported it's, same-sex it's, marriage. It's, it's but now it's massive, exactly, because yeah. it's happened, the sky didn't fall in. Yeah. Um, so while we're riding a popular wave, I don't... It'd be nice to... Uh, you know, a lot of the nice people that you talk to and you knew in your own, like, demographic bubbles obviously thought that it was a no-brainer and we should have equal marriage. But I remember being very surprised when I was doing big public events. So one of the things that I did personally during the, the campaigning um, period, as it were, so let's say from 2000 and 2011 up to 2013 and the app coming in, the bill coming in and everything, was did a lot of public debates around the country because it was very widely discussed. I mean, I think mm. it was it was... It was discussed and, and covered in the media out of all proportion to the effect it would have in practice because, of mm. course, although it's important uh, issue to do with justice, and I'm very glad it got passed, um, it affects fewer people than a lot of other things that were going on at the time, which were not as widely discussed yes. or given such headlines, given such drama and so on as it was. So you had mass public meetings. I remember one debate we did down in Surrey um, when I was, on, I was with a rabbi and a Catholic woman and in favour of same-sex marriage, and we were arguing against an atheist, you know, some journalist, um, a Catholic and someone else, um, who were against same-sex marriage. And the hall was packed out. It was like 400 people. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was completely, you know, talking massive audiences. You think about what was happening in the coalition government at the time, austerity, big political you know, changes, big clashes of various kinds, clashes over Europe. Um, for this to be such a controversial issue, I think, um, was, was, was quite striking. And I didn't really feel that that was an audience where 100% of the people were, were all in favour and there's a massive social tide. I think lots of people were sceptical. Did you, did you feel that um, you needed to get, I don't know, the big newspapers on your side? How important was your sort of media strategy, particularly thinking about, you know, those, again, those, those sort of bellwether, um, you know, you'd expect The Guardian to be in favour, but what about The Daily Mail? What about The Telegraph? What about The Times? Yeah. No, I mean, I, we, I personally and, and Human Shakespeare as an organisation was not really involved in any of the press work around this. We were, we were all complete, almost completely involved in work, government and parliament work. And most of our work was in parliament um, because, of course, what you had to do in parliament was convince you know, some quite sceptical individuals, both in the Lords and in the Commons, that this was the, the right thing. And so we, we focused our attention there. Um, I think the the thing that did the thing that did I think give more support or cause more support within some of what you've described as the more right wing media in 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 the UK were probably the individual stories. You know that's always um, something that gets uh, the likes of the Daily Mail, the Daily Telegraph, sort of becoming a bit more humane is when real human beings are are in there. And I think it was really important from that point of view that. Although the anti-equal marriage campaign was led initially by the former Archbishop of Canterbury, you know Lord Carey, um, the the pro-marriage uh, camp, equal marriage campaign and the coalitions that were set up for that were led by you know two real life people who wanted to get married. Mm-hmm. I think that that was uh, very important. So that was James and Connor, who two of our members, who we um, helped us set up this coalition for equal marriage that started in 2012 um, in support of what were the by then government proposals and um you know that that has an effect on any media always that if you're dealing with real life people who are in front of you and have a human story you know even right-wing media often um, end up being liberal in practice happens now with articles about assisted dying you know people are often Mm. surprised to see so many effectively pro 
assisted dying for the terminally ill articles in the Daily Mail, mm-hmm. but what they're really reading is human interest stories. That, yeah. you know, so, so that counts a lot with writing press. Also, I do think, though, that um, the, the efforts by some otherwise quite socially conservative people, I'm thinking of some, you know, uh, reform, reform Jewish rabbis, for example, um, and sort of, you know, some mainstream conservatives um, who supported marriage because it was marriage mm-hmm. and thought that, you know, this is a way of um, uh, promoting marriage and the stability that marriage brings to, to society. I think that held sway with some conservatives. Of course, we would have been completely the wrong people to put that message out there. Um, but, um, but, but it did. I think it was the thing that, 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 that made sway with conservative press. And I think didn't didn't Douglas Murray, who these days is, you know, speaks at some very right wing events, and um, I think is widely seen to be quite quite right wing. Um, I think even he, um, well, no, especially him, I think, uh, was an advocate in right wing media for equal marriage, based you know on uh, the importance of marriage. You know, even gay people should have marriage because it's so important, mm-hmm. rather than our any arguments for equality, which was seen as more left wing. So it's a bit like I was saying at the beginning, you know. There were so many different campaigns, so many different advocates, as well as campaigns, individual advocates in different media and different places, that they were all essential, probably. We're just going to take a uh, short break there. We'll be back uh, in a few moments um, with Andrew Copson. We're talking about the campaign for equal marriage. Okay, we're back. Uh, we talk about equal marriage with Andrew Copson. Um, Andrew, you were talking um, before the break a bit about yeah some of the opposition, but I just wanted to explain a bit more fully what the opposition was, what it looked like. There was something called, the, I think, the Coalition for Marriage, mm. um, which was sort of created as a, as an organisation to sort of oppose. We also know that I think on the second reading of the bill, something like half of all Tory MPs voted against the bill mm-hmm. as it was going through Parliament. So, and some others, some non And some non-Tory MPs, MPs yeah, exactly, yeah. including Labour. Um, so what did, that, what did those forces arranged against you look like and how much of what you were doing was about neutralising they were saying or were you, you know, were you sort of more ignoring them and trying to make, make your own? Well, the opposition, I mean... Roughly speaking, the opposition was either religious or socially conservative. Um, and, you know, that was true of the so-called coalition for marriage that uh, Lord Carey set up. Um, and it was certainly true for the parliamentary opposition, by and large, as you say. And in fact, the non-conservative MPs who voted against equal marriage, I struggle now at this distance to remember all of them, you know, 11 years or how long it's been. Um, but. I can't think of any of them who weren't religious. You know what I mean? It was, yeah. it was, if you weren't conservative, you were religious. If you weren't religious, you were socially conservative. And they were the reasons why you were opposing mm-hmm. this by and large, you know, some were some fringe eccentrics who opposed things for other reasons, but um, that was by and large true. And the institutional opposition, 
came you know, almost completely from uh, religious organisations. So the then chief rabbi, Lord Sachs, you know, was uh, made it very clear that this couldn't be supported by Orthodox Jews. Lord Carey, the former archbishop, of course, uh, did so. Um, Justin Welby, the current archbishop, who was the archbishop then, you know, definitely helped to lead the opposition in the House of Lords against uh, same-sex marriage. Church of England bishops, who in the strange non-secular parliament that we have in the UK, mm. sit, in, sit in parliament and yes. vote on our laws in the House of Lords. Church of England bishops, all very loud advocates against, well, not all, there was one, but, you know, by and large uh, advocates against, of course, the Catholic Church, um, weighing in very, very strongly. And then, and we, you know, apart from a minority of liberal um, religious institutions like liberal reform Judaism or Quakers and so on, Unitarians, um, religious opposition um, was, was, was quite conspicuous and quite intense. And they lobbied very hard um, in both the Commons and the Lords stages. In the House of Lords, um, the opposition, the conservative opposition, much more visible. So, um, and, and less, uh, apart from the bishops, less, you know, obviously religious, really. So there were arguments there about that were standard social conservative arguments. You know, this is this is new, um, this is strange. Um, redefining marriage is, you know, just sort of uh, in principle wrong. Somehow, marriage is is not something the state sets, but something that predates the state, and the state can't interfere with it. And so, on. Mm-hmm. often these arguments have become confused with arguments about religious marriage. So you know, they say, well, we believe marriage is man and a woman. Uh, you know, sanctified by God for the purpose of children. Um, mm. And you'd have to point out, well, okay, maybe you do, but that's not what legal marriage is no. at the moment. So that's already, but, but those but those arguments, I mean, it seems strange at this distance to, yes. to recall them because they seem so nonsensical, but they were holding sway, you know. Um, like we said earlier, lots of social change um, is, is resisted because it's new, scary. Um, and the arguments that are, f- Put up against that change at the time seemed, you know, vaguely plausible. But once the change has happened, and definitely a few years after, those arguments look completely ridiculous. And that is the case now when you look back at the arguments against equal marriage. What our role was um, at Humanist UK, who, we, of course, we were arguing for two things. We were arguing that the Marriage Act should give equal same sex marriage, but also that it should introduce legal humanist marriage, mm. which it didn't in the end. There was a, um, uh, there was a, a watered down version of that in the Act. But um, when we were making our arguments and doing our briefing, especially in the House of Lords, which was probably the part, the place where we played, I think, the biggest part that we played, um, we were making a lot of sort of philosophical arguments from first principles about marriage, about the nature of marriage, about the role of the state and so on, largely to um, refute these quite bogus, as it now seems, but at the time quite strong and fiercely advanced arguments about the definition and intrinsic nature of marriage. So that was, I think, probably where we, um, like I said, you know, dozens of campaigning organisations and hundreds and thousands of individual advocates are responsible for the introduction of equal marriage. I think our role probably by the time it got to the Lords was in deconstructing and quite visibly refuting some of those conceptual arguments about marriage that were being Mm. advanced. And you had, you had, you, did you draw on the examples from other countries? Absolutely. Where, yeah, so you had Canada, um, I think some some US states had already legalised marriage, I believe. 
Yeah, and and of course the Netherlands. Um, the Netherlands doesn't really help you in arguments in the UK because every every conservative politician in the UK assumes the Netherlands is a complete basket case of liberal madness. And you know, <laughs> if you argue something happens in the Netherlands, it's almost a reason not to do it in England, as far as as far as some conservatives believe. But um, we did. I mean, and that's that. Of course, was was also um, one of the arguments advanced by Stonewall, who by the time the bill was going through Parliament had modified their approach and who were supporting supporting uh, same-sex marriage in full and um they you know they made that point about other jurisdictions as well but we certainly did and, and we were able to um of course make the arguments from from other countries where humanists were doing same-sex marriages you know legal humanist same-sex marriages were, were available and of course that was very important for us to be able to provide that that grassroots you know perspective not just from a couple's point of view but from organizations who wanted to conduct these marriages and indeed, some of the liberal religious groups played their part in that as well. You know, mm-hmm. the original proposal right at the beginning, um, as, as far as the government imagined it, um, was for civil marriage to be equal. You know, but there were groups like liberal Jews and Quakers who said, well, it's not fair. We want Unitarians as well. We want to marry people mm-hmm. because that's our belief. You know, that's our religion. So we think we should be able to do it. And so that, you know, made it into, made it into the bill as well. So I think that a lot of the hard work was done there because ultimately... A lot of social change, especially liberal social change, is about securing for people the right to do what they want to do that doesn't harm anyone else um, in freedom. And this essentially was, 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 was one of those cases, right? Because um, one woman marrying her girlfriend doesn't actually harm Catholic priest X or right. you know, conservative peer Y. Um, and laid bare like that, it's clear that it doesn't. So the more powerful case against change um, is always some sort of bogus argument built on, well, it's always been this way and it always must be and you know, the world is fine, so let's not risk you know, the sky falling in. And so I think that our role in, in exposing some of those arguments, bringing a more rational frame to some of those arguments and pointing out that the sky hadn't fallen in, for example, in the Netherlands, um, was, 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 was an important part of that. You got some help, I think, or support at least from, particularly from the creative community, directors, that, that yeah. sort of thing. How helpful was that, do you think, in, in framing or, or building, you know, a, a more of a coalition of support? Well, I mean, that was the, the there was much more sort of lovey involvement um, in the uh, in the Pink News campaign for, for, for same-sex marriage, which also had a coalition. I'm temporarily forgotten the name of it, but um, they also had a, a sort of campaigning coalition as well. Um, and they attracted all sorts of very prominent uh, people from from sport as well as from, mm. from from the arts, and I think that was important. And I think taking a step back and looking at the general progress in the rights of LGBT people, that's always been important, you know, because the especially the presence in public life of of gay or lesbian or bisexual trans people um, in uh, you know public life in the sense of politics and school teachers and all the rest of it, um, actors and the characters that they play on screen and all the rest of it have been enormously uh, influential in um, remaking people's imagination mm. about you know what relationships are, what what a good life is, what a good good person is, and so on and so forth. Um, to include within that orbit of good people and normal human beings, gay people, yes. and so I think that for them to go that one step further and um, bring them into this campaign, which obviously Pink News and others were able to do. I think was incredibly important. I mean, I don't, I don't know who that persuaded in the moment. I think it probably um, 
as I said, the opinion polls, uh, public's view, um, were not hugely encouraging um, until right, right towards the end. But I think probably that celebrity uh, endorsement made it easier with government and with politicians. And you're, again, you sort of refer to this in... And the press, of course. Yes, and you referred to this in the first half, but the framing that you used was, was it seemed to me, sort of one of the framings that you used was a sort of love and commitment yeah. frame. Uh, yeah, could you talk a bit about that? And, and you know, because you could, you could have framed it different ways, more of a rights issue or more of a yeah. kind of... So what, can you talk a bit about that? Well, I think that... Well, I think this has been a generally successful tactic and not just a tactic. I think it's, you know, part and parcel of the motivation often of lots of people running campaigns like this to, uh, to of course, it's about equality and it's about justice and it's about you know, equal treatment and human dignity. And those things with many people, I'm one of them, resonate very powerfully, you know, and that's the sort of world you want to live in where human rights respecting uh, jurisdictions of, of, of all kinds. But what everyone understands is love. Is relationships, um, is personal commitment and happiness, and so I think that that to, to frame things that way um, was very sensible. And it wasn't just a tactic; it's also genuine. I mean, you know, the way one of the ways that we socially recognise relationships in our culture is through this institution of marriage. And I think that the the idea that there were people shut out from that which some people might read as a, a rights and equality issue, and I certainly would be one of those people, but others just would respond to emotionally, uh, uh, even with that image of being shut out of it, you know, um, was, I think, very important because that was what the law, that was what the effect of the law was um, for the whole time that, that, that same-sex yes. couples couldn't get married. That was the personal, emotional, and, and, and lived effect of that, of that ban, effectively. And so... I think that to frame the campaign that way was very, very sensible. And I think we all did frame the campaign like that in the end, actually. I mean, there was, there was some technical parliamentary uh, aspects which were framed in terms of especially international and European equality law and human rights law, which, of course, is the law under which previous attempted legal claims to secure this right through the courts have been made as well. But in Parliament, especially with parliamentarians who want to perhaps defend their actions to constituents who aren't as supportive of things like equality and so on, um, love and commitment and relationships and the institution of marriage were, were probably the right way, way to frame it. It also made the religious opposition much harder for them to argue for, of course, yes. because uh, you know, they would have to explain why uh, their religious beliefs were so strong that it should veto other people's love mm. and relationships that you know, loving relationships that by this point, of course, many people in society also experience in their family or friends or, uh, you know, themselves. Yeah, I mean, it's, it sort of seems quite like a no-brainer, but, you know, sort of a, a fairly well-supported and sort of, in a way, obvious thing to have done. Um, but at the time, I mean, we've talked about the opposition, but the, the, there are people who are, who are very upset about this, or, or who, at least who were very upset. Mm. Did you ever experience, either personally or hear about colleagues who experienced abusive or threatening or oh, yeah. you know, that kind of? We got lo we got loads of that, even in even in the organisation, even here mm. in the UK, definitely. I mean, in those days as well. These days, everything all the abuse comes by email or on social media. Mm. But in those days, we still got posts, you know, and there were mm. um, there was someone. Uh, was it just before the bill of staff who'd gone gone to the trouble of like printing out pictures of staff members from our website and 
drawn the flames of hell around them and <laughs> stuck yeah. them onto this bit of cardboard and posted them in. So did, did, you, did you get the sense that that opposition was mainly from... Because you can imagine also far-right groups, you know, would, at the time would have been against gay marriage, but but they weren't really putting their head above the parapet and were interested in other things. I don't think they were, no. I mean, of course, a lot of far-right groups at the time were quite obsessed with the European Union, which was this to line in different ways. Um, but I didn't, I mean, I didn't personally experience any of that from far-right groups. No, it was all the religious groups, I'm afraid, that the abuse came from, or religious individuals. Mm. Just looking back then um, at, at this campaign, are there specific lessons that you take from that period of your life and your, your sort of career um, and your campaigning that you, you know, you think it'd be useful for other campaigners to, to learn from? Or, um, you know, do you have specific things that you indeed regretted doing or thought that didn't work and that you could have done differently? Some of the lessons I think are irre- Some of the lessons I think are not reproducible because... One of the things that I feel, especially looking back on, as it were, the decades, um, from my personal perspective as a, as a sort of young person campaigning before any of this was thought of, and also from the point of view of the organisation I worked for going since the 1890s, you know, um, I think that it was clear that the success of the campaign relied very heavily on many preceding decades of hard work. You know, I think Lynn Featherston said herself, mm-hmm. she was the Minister of Courses primarily responsible for bringing this about. She said herself that she was very conscious of standing on the shoulders of, you know, giants of campaigners in, in the previous decades who'd, who'd brought this about. And I would still meet, you know, right up until very recently, people in their 80s and slightly older sometimes, um, who had taken part in, as it were, uh, marriage ceremonies in the, in the 60s or 50s. Uh, and had, you know, through their through their later work and through the work of through the work of gay advocacy groups, whether it was you know, the early campaign for homosexual equality or gay and lesbian humanist association or outrage or Stonewall, um, or the efforts of individual gay people through decriminalization, the equal age of consent, you know, arguing for social recognition um, and all of that, you know, it was really clear that. Without all of that, this, in some ways, very technical uh, civil rights issue of legal relationship status could never even have been uh, conceptualised, never mind actually addressed. And so that's not reproducible, perhaps, because it relies on you know, decades of history. Although there maybe is a lesson there for, for, for campaigners, which is to say when you're, when you're looking at a social situation that you want to try and resolve or achieve change in relation to, Maybe look for the history um, and try and go with the grain of it to some extent. You know, I mean, to primarily have pursued the question of equal marriage, not as a, in the public campaign, I mean, not as a legal issue, but as an issue instead about love and the rights of people to love who they wanted and all the same sort of arguments that were sort of same age of consent arguments or, or decriminalisation arguments, um, was going with the grain of, of at least historical progress in this issue so i suppose to try to go with the grain um as far as you can as a change as a, as a person who's attempting to make change um would be a lesson that, that might be reproducible then i think in the actual technical aspects of the sort of the 20 years running up to to, to uh 2013 let's say i would say that one of the lessons and we 
don't always get it get it right. Those of us who work for campaigning organisations in this respect. One of the lessons is, you know, don't be afraid of letting a thousand flowers bloom in terms of the number of different campaigns that there were. You know, I know that some people try to take credit one way or another for, for things they always do. Um, but I think one of the secrets of success in this was that there were just lots of people all aiming for the same outcome um, in different ways, working for it in different ways, and not very, you know, precious or um, possessive of uh, the ground to do that from, you know. And I think that is a valuable lesson, not to be afraid of having lots and lots and lots of collaborators and don't see them as sort of competition for your, uh, which often... NGOs especially often can think, oh, yes. is this person trying to compete with me? I want to make this change. You think, no, Every, if everyone's pushing in the same direction, sometimes having too many people doing the same thing can be, you know, redundant and sometimes counterproductive. Um, but sometimes it can be exactly what you need to have the broad reach, broad appeal on a wide range of, of, of sources. You know, it was great that the, you know, in the first tranche of organisations that joined the Coalition for, for Equal Marriage that we, of the two, that were the one that we uh, got going, it was great that the, the Conservative LGBT group, the Lib Dem LGBT group and the mm. Labour LGBT group, in fact, they all joined in together. Mm -hmm. And they've done it a lot more since, actually. But this was, you know, really good that they did that. Um, so don't be afraid of um, wide, broad cooperation. You don't have to be under the same umbrella. You know, if you've got a shared aim, that would be the other thing I'd say. And then... I suppose one of the things I notice only in retrospect is how useful it was to have a lot of people doing very different things. So it was genuinely useful, I think, that there wasn't one organisation or, or one person trying to do the work with government and the work in the Lords and the work in the Commons and the work with the political parties and the media work and the influencer work and so on and so forth. And I, I'm very happy that our part in that was mostly confined to policy and mostly confined to Parliament. Although, you know, also supporting the coalition and doing other work sort of in the back, you know, around behind the scenes, as it were, which yeah. everyone does. And, you know, only only the archives will show <laughs> decades to come. Um, but, you know, I was quite happy with our contribution being that. Um, and other people made contributions in different fields, which, you know, I'll probably know, never know about. And maybe they didn't even knew what maybe they never knew what we were doing. You know, I think to be, to be comfortable with that as well. OK, great. Well, Andrew, so thanks so much for your your contribution and, and those lessons I, I really appreciate it and uh, it's been fascinating hearing about about the campaign thank you